Hi, this is Rachel Romeliotis of O'Reilly Media. I'm Vice President of Content Strategy, and I am here with Atif Qureshi, Global VP, Emerging Practices, Artificial Intelligence, and Deep Learning at Teradata. Welcome. Hi, Rachel. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. So I'm going to dive right in because this is fascinating stuff. I was reading up on some uh, Teradata press releases. It was based on a survey of 260 large organizations operating globally conducted by Vance and Bourne on behalf of Teradata. And it states that 80% of enterprises are investing uh, today in AI, but one in three business leaders believe their company will need to invest more over the next 36 months to keep pace with competitors, while at the same time anticipating significant barriers of adoption. So that leads me to a couple of questions for you. So there are some surprising things in there. So first, are you surprised by that 80% number? I think we are. And in fact, the actual survey uh, results was 80% of respondents reported that they already had AI in production in their organization, which is even more fascinating. And I think that points to two things. One is ensuring that we have a consistent definition of AI and what that really means. And so as, as part of the survey, we actually did put forward a definition, which is the ability to automate enterprise decision-making given leverage uh, to human workers using cognitive interactions, um, machine and deep learning. And we gave some characteristics, specific characteristics, around what those AI capabilities need to demonstrate. And that is an ability to sense and continuously learn based on data, reason and infer, and then be able to decide and act in an automated or assisted way, and all of that to drive a business outcome. So with that definition, we were very surprised that these respondents who are, you know, executives, senior executives in their organizations, saying that they've you know, put forward 80% into production. Now, here's the flip side, which is the reality is AI is being driven by the C-suite. This isn't strictly a technology play. So there is a lot of pressure for leadership to demonstrate capabilities in AI because that's either coming from their CEOs or their executive leaders. And so there's probably a little bit of speaking in generalized terms around their types of AI capabilities. And over time, I think that understanding will be refined. So now when you talk about that consistent definition, I actually brought up a couple of questions. One, when this survey was taken, the people that said yes, the 80%, they were saying yes to that definition. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, they were saying yes to it. And we also cited kind of specific capabilities that we believe needed to be in place. And generally, we think of them, you know, in five sort of core capabilities, if you will. And, um, you know, those five core capabilities are sort of cognitive design, the way to build new interactions with intelligent learning systems, a lot of the conversational or digital assistance chatbots, knowledge AI workers are all things that are, are new ways of interfacing between humans and, and machines. So that was one. Another was intelligent workflow and decisioning. How do you uh, reimagine business processes to drive advanced decisioning and reasoning within an operational setting and an operational context? Third, deep learning and, and machine learning, which you know I think a lot of the practitioners in this space are very familiar with the application of neural networks and these learning algorithms and having that infrastructure in place of robust GPU and CPU processing. Data engineering, which is, you know, all of this structured and, of course, unstructured data, audio, imagery, and, you know, all of the kind of unconventional data that's now able to be analyzed. 
And then finally, analytic ops, which is key for organizations to really be able to push their models from development into production and do that in a repeatable way and and manage that whole life cycle. So those were the five core capabilities that we described are kind of what we see as being necessary to drive outcomes and operational capabilities. And in reading that, yes, we did get back 80% had said that they had pushed AI capabilities into production. So, um, So nonetheless, we were one, encouraged, but two, also, you know, a little surprise, I guess, is the best way to, to say it. So you talked about a lot about the technology that is needed and what it really is. What does an investment sort of on the business side mean, either in people or technology capabilities or cloud, or, um, you know, hookups? What, is, what does that mean for businesses? Well, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think the, the key aspect of understanding what are the key challenges within an AI space, we think of it, you know, in, in three ways. So from a strategic perspective, really getting grounded on what's the outcomes that an organization is trying to drive to. And this is where, you know, organizations are most successful in ensuring their investments in AI, machine and deep learning really come to fruition. So getting anchored in the key outcomes and getting that executive level sponsorship. Now, typically within an organization, these groups and data and expertise cross organizations, lines of business, business units. And so there's all of that kind of cultural change management aspects that need to be addressed. Now, you know, if once that's able to be sort of orchestrated, socialized and overcome, because there is always, you know, you always have to fight the perception that this is just hype and that, you know, we're a long way away from this actually materializing, but actually the opposite is true, which which is these capabilities are there for organizations to take a hold of. And so embracing it and going after it is important. But you mentioned talent. And so some key aspects, one, you know, essential aspect is ensuring that you have the right talent to be able to drive success here. And so depending on how an organization actually acquires those capabilities, you know, kind of the build versus buy, if you will, or integrate, that's going to affect directly how much talent they need to have in-house versus how much they potentially collaborate with others on to be able to implement those AI capabilities. Yeah. So does it sound like this would be sort of an augmentation of the the data analysis and the data team? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's definitely a data foundation that is essential here because any of these algorithms and models need robust data. And we always say, you know, more data outperforms better algorithms. So if you're able to have a very robust, well understood data foundation that combines kind of high value, kind of typically structured data with high velocity unstructured data, then you're able to really achieve a lot more success. And then kind of putting in the additional elements that a lot of these newer techniques require, like a robust kind of GPU cluster infrastructure to kind of uh, be able to train and do inferencing at scale, then you're in a much stronger position. So the the other two pillars, and and Rachel, thanks for reminding me, uh, the first one we talked about was the strategic elements. But the other, the other two pillars are analytics and data. And so having, again, that robust data foundation along with uh, a very kind of sophisticated analytics environment is really important. That ties to the broader ecosystem, embraces open source, as well as, you know, COTS and uh, different mature products that 
live in the space is all part of bringing it all together. So you, you so you've talked about some things um, that I think need to be in place before you sort of embark on investing in AI and then certainly getting it into production. We've talked about kind of making sure that the C-suite is in on the the plan. So obviously, you know, having good, clean data is a part of it. And then we started to touch a little bit upon um, sort of some of the hardware that you're going to need, like GPUs and stuff. Can you elaborate a little bit more on sort of like what barriers people are going to face as they make these decisions in their companies moving forward? Yeah, I think, you know, back to the kind of analytics portion, one barrier that we see often is a lot of the innovation is in the academic or applied research space. And so uh, as organizations, whether in an R&D setting or in an, kind of in an innovation setting, they look to bring in these different frameworks, these different technologies, these different approaches, it very quickly leads to fragmentation. So if you think of very large enterprise settings, multinational sort of conglomerates, they have groups, data science teams, and lines of business that live all over the world. And so as they bring in you know, the new emerging frameworks such as TensorFlow Keras or, or even Spark Python, what's out there, if they're not able to sort of govern that environment, then very quickly they have this proliferation of models. And over time, as they try to push these models in production, it becomes very uneven. And so, again, going back to some of the analytic ops thinking, we took a lot of the learnings that was done in the software development space for DevOps of how to kind of be able to do a lot of the continuous integration and continuous deployment approaches and apply them to analytics. And that's one area that we've been working very closely with our customers. Now, another area is if you're able to get into production or have visibility about pushing these more advanced sort of black box models into production, model transparency becomes a big issue. And so the the concept of explainability or interpretability is a really important one, especially in highly regulated industries such as financial services or healthcare. And essentially, you know, the conversation goes like, hey, we developed this model based on all of this data and was able to train it. And we have predictions that are incredibly accurate. And then you get a regulator, an auditor that says, hey, that's great, but you need to explain very distinctly for instance, if you're doing fraud detection and credit card authorizations, why did you decline uh, this particular credit card transaction? And so you need to be able to do that in a low latency, high frequency environment with a lot of fidelity or interpret- interpretability, transparency, I should say, into why that occurred. And so the areas of interpretability is really important for these types of deep neural networks to be realized in a production setting. So that's that's another key area that we, uh, as well as others, are, are doing a lot of investment in research to make sure that when these capabilities get into production, they stay in production and they serve the business well. That's so interesting. I actually, that seems to be something that's still sort of emerging. We were actually talking to someone about producing some content on this sort of interpretability and the whole idea of how do you, you know, take the opacity away from that black box. If you go with purchasing something over sort of building it yourself, I guess this is the same question. You know, how do you, is that something you have to think about from the beginning? Sort of how do you make this interpretability and transparency sort of one of the main things that you need, like going in, you're like, we need this. How do you make sure that that stays that way through to the end? That's a great point, Rachel. And I think it is something that organizations need to think about upfront. And it's, it gets back to 
understanding the strategic imperative and the operational and business context that these capabilities will live within. And, you know, if there's degrees of automation, because really what we're talking about previously, you would have investigators or analysts that would provide this, these explanations, which of course, very manually intensive and becomes cost prohibitive. So if you're going to push this into the machine and garner machine intelligence, you need to have the machine express that level of understanding. And, And when we think about interpretability, there's really two distinct aspects to it. One is sort of this perturbation interpretation, which means which features of data change the prediction or influence the outcome of the model most when changed the least. And this is important when you're really trying to understand, you know, some of the sensitivities of um, how you can adjust to get an optimal outcome. The other aspect, which is probably more important to auditors and, you know, regulatory bodies is relevant interpretation which essentially means which features actually cause the prediction. So again, going back to the example of fraud, that if you have um, a, a binary indicator that says fraud or not fraud, if you do flag something as fraud, then you have to express which features or attributes of the transaction caused it to be distinguished as fraud. And, And of course, it could be more than one. And so there's probability element to it. Uh, But those are kind of two sort of distinct interpretations of interpretability that need to be considered. That's really fascinating. And so you've brought up a couple of different industries, finance and healthcare. And and I'm just sort of wondering, you know, both of those, obviously, I think most industries will benefit from AI in some way. But are there different industries that are sort of leading the pack as far as actually seeing a difference in business outcomes today due to AI? Yeah, I think... um, the, the usual suspects of industries that are always on the leading edge or fast followers of new innovation are what we are seeing again. Um, so financial services, retail, telcos, comedy, entertainment, what have you. And so that's kind of more of the same and a lot of interesting problems that they're taking on. But really in, in manufacturing, of course, high tech and auto uh, is where we're seeing a lot of momentum. And some of that phenomenon is coming from really two things. One, uh, all of this push towards autonomous driving and connected cars uh, are causing the industry to really be disruptive and, and huge investments in really computer vision types of techniques. So, and, and I think you know that's really been in the public media. And so we all follow that and understand that. But the other aspects is really operational efficiency and supply chain. And so a lot of investment in areas like predictive maintenance, um, condition-based monitoring, again, to really drive out costs, reduce unplanned outages, and get in front of you know, any disruptions to an operational environment. How about um, working your work with Teradata? Have you implemented an AI solution that's driven sort of this substantial change that you're talking about? We have. Uh, in fact, uh, we've done several. One that we probably talk about the most is our engagement with Danske Bank, in which they had an unusually or unacceptably high uh, number of false positives uh, relative to uh, their digital payment transactions. They are a retail bank in the Nordic, uh, a medium-sized bank uh, that serves that region. 
And so in working with them, they had a desire and really a vision to become a data-driven bank. And so as part of that journey, we worked very closely with them. Similar, Rachel, to kind of what you brought up before in terms of building uh, a robust data foundation to enable advanced analytics and data science. And over the course of our collaboration, we built several machine and deep learning models that we've deployed into production in collaboration with them, which has resulted in really tremendous improvement, both in the detection of fraud and in the reduction of false positives. And it's really been fascinating to kind of be along this journey with them. And they are constrained by things like GDPR and a lot of the concepts that we're sharing, as well as interoperability challenges to work with their, their infrastructure. Uh, some of this uh, has to work on-prem considerations of potentially pushing some of this workload in a cloud environment. Uh, low latency types of uh, constraints, um, you know, within milliseconds that transactions need to be scored. And so it was just fascinating working closely with them. The other sort of innovation that came out of that was the application of a convolutional neural network, which is typically used for imagery data, and how you leverage CNNs to apply to time series data. And while that sounds uh, maybe like a mouthful. What's so fascinating about that is it's really applying these deep neural networks to time series data, which is probably a, a big portion of the data that's out there that can be taken advantage of using more sophisticated types of anomaly detections. That can be applied to so many use cases. One that is also very close to me personally in my professional career is in the area of information security and, and cybersecurity. And so we know about the increasing breaches and high-profile compromises that continue to affect everyone across the world. And so what information security practitioners are challenged with uh, within the Security Operations Center is how do you get better detection, reduction of false positives, so that you can you know, detect, triage, contain those compromises and very quickly return back to a normal sort of operating paradigm. And so, again, these innovations of leveraging time series data can absolutely be applied into other areas. That's fascinating. So you mentioned a couple others. Do you want to um, give me another example? It would be great to, to have another sort of different type of example. Yeah. So some other examples uh, and use cases where organizations are applying uh, machine and deep learning, and uh, I should say more focused on the deep learning aspect, is in the areas of customer experience. So again, high value problems that have been existing in organization and then applying more advanced and sophisticated techniques like deep learning is what you know enterprises are looking at. So how do you do better contextualized marketing campaigns that you know take into account all of the digital touch points of a customer, their behaviors to drive a better experience in distinct campaigns, ultimately to upsell, cross-sell, increase revenues and increase the customer experience. Okay. Uh, another area that we see consistently is, is in product innovation. So for an organization to drive more intelligence, more automation, and again, better experience within their products, they're leveraging machine and deep learning to bring that to market. Uh, we talked a little bit around different types of operational excellence initiatives in, within the supply chain, within operations or risk mitigation around 
mitigating cyber attacks and fraud. Some other areas are in asset optimization. How do you do better deployment of different assets? And those assets could include equipment, materials, or even human capital. So a lot of organizations are figuring out how to drive more automation using machine and deep learning to, again, do cost takeout, uh, reduce the manually intensive labor activities, and redeploy their workforce into more high-value opportunities. Interesting. So, I mean, those are different types of cases where AI is making a difference. So my question is, you mentioned with the bank that they're Basically, there was a point where one of my favorite pitfalls is like, how do I have this work with the legacy technology that every business has, right? So if you can kind of talk about sort of maybe starting with, you know, how do you incorporate this into sort of the legacy that you have in your own company, but also sort of any other common pitfalls and challenges that in in working with companies you've seen and had to like work through with these these partners? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of emerging sort of approaches and innovations, AI is no different in the sense of our journey with Danske Bank in particular looked pretty similar to a lot of the experiences many of your listeners would have in the sense of, you know, formulating a specific opportunity, articulating the ROI or the business case around it, however formal or informal that may be, and seeking a champion who's going to evangelize on behalf of that idea. And then the key aspect is to get enough syndication and support around the organization, again, because these AI-like capabilities touch so many parts of the organization are really transformative. So all of the leaders of the various business units, the CTO, the CIO, sometimes the chief risk officer, chief financial officer, and their respective teams, chief data officer, all need to come together and agree that this is something to go after. And and maybe a separate discussion is how does that get funded? Because, you know, funding lines usually are organized into organizational constructs. So those are some of the other challenges just from a, you know, commercial sort of perspective of of how you get started. But, you know, let's say you're, you're able to do that, have the right governance in place, get the right socialization and support in place, Being able to describe success is incredibly important because what you start with and where you end up may be dramatically different. And that's okay as long as, you know, there are strong learnings that are occurring in place for the organization and they're seeing what the challenges are, uh, how to overcome those challenges and continue to invest and stay the course, if you will. And then, of course, ensuring that you have the right expertise that's proven who's done this before. So you have the confidence and trust to continue to move forward. So, you know, as you do that, that will typically manifest into some proof of concept, proof of value uh, that is, you know, several weeks, not months, because, you know, the patience of the business is very limited. And we're at a point now, you know, globally where we want to see results fast. We live in a digital age. So being able to demonstrate progress, um, however that's measured and articulated in some sort of proof of concept, proof of value, And then once you're able to achieve that, pivot into, we're going to push this now into an operational setting because it it doesn't count if it never actually gets into production. And yes, there's a lot of learnings and understanding, which I'm I'm being somewhat facetious, but from a business perspective, leaders don't like it. It it counts unless it's 
within the operating context. So as we talked about earlier, always having a lens towards that on this journey, and then very quickly be able to pivot and uh, push into production. So I think, you know, in our experience with Danska, I may be off by a few weeks here and there, but I think in total, it was around seven months from the initial conversation to getting through that socialization, work towards a proof of concept, and then move towards a production deployment, which is fascinating uh, if you really think about it, to be able to drive that much sophistication given all of the challenges that typically an organization faces. That's really phenomenal. Well, that's really fascinating. I mean, I think it's just going to be changing the face of so many industries now and for many years to come. So I want to thank you for your insight into it. I could talk to you for another 30 minutes, basically, but (laughs) I'm going to have to end it there. So thanks for joining me. Rachel, my pleasure. And thanks for having me.